Okay, so um, many of you may know, many of you may not know, but Austin New Church partners with a really cool organization that I happen to work for called Help One Now. And Help One Now exists to empower local indigenous leaders to end extreme poverty in their communities. And that happens really by us focusing on education long-term and entrepreneurship, helping families start businesses to sustain themselves. We do a lot of other things in the mix of that, but really we're helping communities to pull themselves out of poverty and sustain themselves into the future. And we do that through local leaders. We're in Haiti, Dominican Republic, Peru. Many of you have gone on trips to these places. Ethiopia, Uganda, Zimbabwe, Malawi. We're starting a new partnership in Belize. So we're, we're, we're getting a lot of great work done. You guys are a big part of that. And so uh, I have the privilege this morning of introducing you to uh, the person who kind of kick-started all of that, okay? He's our founder and our director. Uh, so you guys, he's going to share with us this morning. You guys welcome Chris Marlowe to the stage. Um, good morning. How y'all doing? So, so good to be here. Um, really, this is like a coming home party uh, for me. Uh, I spent um, six years here in Austin. Um, I was north of the river. I know it's shocking and hard for many of you to imagine that. Um, when we planted a church north of the river, and um, they called us in the south, Austin neighborhood, they would call us missionaries. And so um, we're like, we're up there. And they're like, you, you got, you're crazy. How would you sacrifice so much for Jesus to live north of the river? Um, and so anytime you'd want to meet with someone, you know, or talk about ministry or making a difference in our city, like, I'll meet with you if you want to come south. It's okay. Um, but one of the concepts I've been working through lately, and I think it's, it's, it's really important for all of us, is how do we get out in front of regret? So when we think about regret, typically it's something that we've already done that we've regret. Maybe last night, Saturday got wild, and the Sunday morning you're regretting your Saturday night experience. Who knows? It's a safe place. Don't worry about it. We don't judge you around here. Um, but I've been thinking, how do you get out in front of regret? Now, spending many, many years in Austin, when I come back, you always have these moments where you're reminiscing about the beauty. When I came to Austin, I was at my lowest point in my adult life. I remember coming here um, as a failed church planter, <clears throat> wondering, like, is this like my last shot at life? You know, I'm in my early 30s, I think, and now I'm not in my early 30s anymore. It's been a long time. Um, but I'm really thinking, like, is this my last? Like, what? I didn't know anyone in the city. Um, and I just, I just reminisced about this moment this week, about how this city has really rescued my life and has meant so much to to us as an organization and to my family. And how, um, you know, Austin has adopted us in many, in so a few months ago, my wife and I were in town, friends, um, and we stayed at the, at the San Jose, um, down the street here. And I just remember having this great, like, ex Austin experience at the San Jose. And we would, you know, go to Joe's, and um, we wanted to have two dinners one night, so we did, we did Guerrero's, tacos, all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, this is the Austin I love and miss. Um, and it was a great moment. And then a few, uh, about a week ago, I asked Lamar, like, Lamar, where should I stay in, when I come to Austin? And, you know, where's our meetings at logistically? And he's like, oh, just stay somewhere north. And so um, I, one of our team members gave me a hotel, and I was flying in, and I opened my app, and it was um, at the A-loft at the domain. And I thought, this is what it means to have regret in life. 
right? This is what I, this is like, God, this is exactly like, how did I go from the San Jose to the A-loft? It's the moment that is still driving me nuts. I drove in Friday night and I was literally like, uh, and, like, how am I going to do this? It took 20 minutes to go two blocks in that crazy place. This is, um, but Austin has meant so much. I came really, really broken. We planted a church. Our life was going really, really well. And then there was one moment that changed everything. It was a moment where I went to Zimbabwe. I met a starving kid at this gas station. And I remember that moment changing literally everything in my life. And so a few hours later, we left that gas station. And we were with our friend, John Chinawa, who is one of the most brilliant local leaders that I've ever met. And we were spending time at his kid's home called Mushawavana. And Pastor John would take in what we, what we call the, like the worst case on the edge of life kids. And he had 33 kids. Um, I'll show you these kids now. They're awesome. Uh, but those were some of the original kids that I had met. And I remember spending time with these kids. And there was this moment while I was at this kid's home in 2007. And we were walking out of the gate and a whole bunch of community kids ran up to the gate. And they began to like ask Pastor John this question. They said, Pastor, Pastor, do you have any beds yet? And I remember this, um, my first time walking through these emotions of seeing families struggle, kids struggle in extreme poverty. And Pastor John gets on his knees. He makes eye contact in the most humble, beautiful way. And I remember seeing the tears kind of pour out of my new friend's eyes. And he says, um, kids, I'm so sorry. We don't have any room. Please pray that we will have room. And I recognize these kids. My daughters were five and seven. And um, my heart was literally like breaking. Like I felt like God brought me to Austin, stabilized my life because of this great community. And then he picked me up, dropped me in the middle of hell and said, this is happening and I need you to do something about it. It's what it means to be a Christian and a disciple is to love and care for the poor. So my heart is breaking. I see my friend John's heart breaking. There are these 33 kids who were literally suffering and then so many community kids. The global orphan crisis was massive and severe. And uh, a few days later, I get on a plane and I'm coming back to Austin and I'm thinking like my life will forever be changed. This was a this was, we have a few moments in life that change the trajectory of our lives. And I knew immediately this was one of those moments. The gas station and these 33 kids was one of these moments. And so um, I remember coming back, and the first person I called was Brandon. And uh, he made me come to the south um, of Austin. He's, Brandon, can we um, grab coffee? If you want to come south, okay, we'll do it. Yeah, let's go. Um, I remember coming and meeting with Brandon and just sharing my heart, and I'm like, Brandon, there are these 33 kids, man, and they're like, they literally get fed every other day just to survive, and I'm a church planner up north, and Austin New Church was just starting as a community back in, this is 2007, 2008, and um, Brandon's like, we got you, like, we're in, we'll, we'll help you take care of those kids, and I remember the gift of this moment. I ended up coming and speaking to Austin New Church, and um, it was amazing because Jen just cried the whole time. We were talking about orphans, and um, Trey's going to be like, we'll figure this out. And um, you know what's really fascinating about this moment is you were the first community to say yes to this vision, to start caring for these 33 kids. 
Two things happened in this moment. The first thing is it gave me a full year of my life to do research. I would travel the world and I would meet people doing work all over the world. And here's mostly what I saw. I mostly saw white men leading in places they don't belong. And it drove me nuts. I couldn't understand it. And this community, 12 years ago, gave me the gift of a year to go out and listen and learn. And I remember seeing John, our leader, and meeting other leaders around the world. And I'm like, these are the most brilliant leaders. What do they need? And I realized what they needed. They needed for us to get out of the way, but be their support system. What if folks like John in Zimbabwe didn't have to fight extreme poverty alone? What if they knew they had a community, a tribe, a group of people who were going to walk with them, but we were going to be invisible in the community, and they were going to be the leaders. They were, they were going to be the innovators. They were going to be the change makers, but they knew they didn't have it alone. And so today is a, kind of a fascinating day. I always get a little emotional when I come here because those 33 kids, one thing that you all did, I always forget the story, but it's so beautiful. Um, these kids didn't have clean water. And um, I remember, you know, having a conversation like, how do we provide these kids clean water? And you all did this thing called Garage Store for Orphans way back in the day. And um, that was just a really small initiative we did. And we raised a million dollars in four years. Remember, we were planting Austin New Church was like 07, 08, helping out. No one wanted to give money back then, right? We were all so worried about our own lives. We didn't even know how to raise money. Um, but y'all did this massive garage sale all over the city. And that clean water project is still providing water for the people in that community today. Ten years later, a gift of a garage sale of saying, we have enough stuff, let's get rid of it and repurpose it to do good, is still making a difference in this community. And so... Those 33 kids that you all said yes to, many of them are now in college. Many of them are in technical school. Many of them have been reunited with their families. Not all the stories worked out the way we'd hoped. We still have many struggles and we're fighting for progress. But those 33 kids has now become an impact of over 200,000 people all around the world. Here's what's fascinating about this. Oftentimes when you start an organization, the founder gets the credit, right? If you fail, you get the credit for failing as well. But the founder gets the credit. But here's what I want you to know this morning. The most important people in any vision is always the first few people who say yes when there's no reason to say yes. And your community, back even though you weren't here, still part of the lifeblood of this community, you all said yes to help one now. And those 33 and through that impact has created over 200,000 people impacted around the world. So I wanted to come and just say thank you for being a part of what we're doing. We're celebrating our 10-year anniversary, and you guys were the very first people to say yes to what is happening all over the world. A few thoughts this morning before you hear from my good friend from Ethiopia, Shalo. Um, as we are thinking about this 10-year anniversary, all of us, we have dreams in life. We have hopes. We have ambitions. And many of us are, you know, wondering, will those dreams be fulfilled? Um, some of you are already successful and you're living into your dream. But there's a few things that we've learned along the way. 
If you're going to see a dream fulfilled, you're going to need a community of people who will help you see that become a reality. This was the community of people who helped the Help One Now dream become a reality. But ultimately, in our everyday lives, we're going to always need a community of people who will surround us and say, you know what? I will help you fulfill your dream. And you can help us fulfill our dream. And so when I think about 10 years of celebrating the, the work of Help One Now, this was the community that said yes to that opportunity. But in our day-to-day lives, we can also be those people saying yes to our neighbors, um, to the people in our city. Whatever you do that you want to succeed, you're going to need each other in order to thrive and flourish in life. We need community. Um, the second thing, and this is a, a concept that I've been really um, working on and I'm very poor at, and maybe you will understand this, but oftentimes as we celebrate 10 years, um, I've realized how poor I am at celebrating the goodness of life. Sometimes when you're a justice-driven type of community or individual, when you spend your days working on hard problems, you can easily forget all the good that is taking place, all the progress that is happening. The question I would have this morning is what are you celebrating in your life today? The goodness of life, the beauty of life. What are, you, are you celebrating God's faithfulness in your life? We are trying to spend this year as an org celebrating all the goodness of God. It's not always hard to celebrate because we're so busy. We're constantly moving forward. We're constantly um, trying to solve problems. Um, but if we live a life that doesn't celebrate, we will live a life that doesn't experience joy. We will live a life that doesn't experience space to step back and, and, and remember the goodness of what's happening. I learned this a hard lesson when I was in Syria and Jordan a couple, uh, this time last year. I remember being in, um, in this community of people who had experienced some of the hardest things imaginable in life. And when I was in Jordan on the border of Syria, we went there basically to spend time with some potential local leaders who we think would be great partners and I remember one of these local leaders said, will you come visit a family with me um, today? And he began to teach me um, kind of some, 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 you know, engage in this family, um, being, a, you know, kind of an outsider and wanting to respect who they are. I remember walking into um, this gentleman's house, and he has tea set up, and we sat down on his couch. And um, he's a Syrian, and he was a banker in Syria and lived a really amazing life, really quality life. And... Um, it's kind of silent and awkward for four or five minutes, and I don't quite know how to engage in the moment because I'm just trying to, like, I'm just trying to understand what's happening. And um, he begins to tell me his story, and here's what he says. He says, when I was in Syria, there came a moment where I recognized as much as it was hard to leave what I had, our whole entire family lineage was going to be wiped out if we didn't make a change. And he began to tell me the story of how the government's bombing one side, ISIS is coming on the other side, and he knew he had to make this decision to take his family out um, of, of Syria and make a run to Jordan. But he said there was a moment where he recognized this. He knew there would be casualties along the way because ISIS sets up these checkpoints, and anyone trying to flee for safety, they literally are trying to, you know, take people out at the border. And so he has these, he has, as he's telling me the story, and um, my heart's literally like breaking 
why we're having tea. I'm, I, it's, it's almost like a call back to the 33 kids when I met them in Zimbabwe, the hurt and the pain and the injustice. And I'm trying to like understand how it makes sense. And so basically he tells me, um, he says, do you think your God would hear my prayers? And um, I said, yeah, my God hears all prayers, everyone's prayers. And he says, can you pray for me because I have a decision I have to make every single day. Because I have to choose every day if I want to join ISIS and go back home or if I want to be a good Muslim and continue to be faithful. Will you pray to your God that I would have the courage to be faithful and not join ISIS? And I walk out of his house and I'm just completely angry and upset. I'm really upset at God. I'm like, God, what is happening? Why is this happening? Why is there so much brokenness? Probably the lowest point I can remember in the 12 years with Help One Now. Almost to the point where I'm like, it's not worth it. This is not worth it. There's just too much pain, too much hate, too much anger, too much, too much, and too much. And then um, we prayed together in his house before I left, and he gave me a hug, and he introduced me to his wife and his kids. And when we walk out, um, my friend says, that. That means he gave you the highest honor he can give you. Um, a few hours later, we show up at this church service, and it's Syrian and Iraqi refugees who are Christians fleeing persecution and war. And um, I'm kind of quiet and frustrated and angry. And uh, my family's with me, my daughters and my wife and Lamar and others, and um, we're eating with them. And um, we walk into this church service, and... Um, I watched them worship God, and I watched them celebrate, and I was so, like, then, of course, they asked me to speak, which is awkward, because I'm like, you need to teach me more than I need to teach you, so after the church, I was spending time with them, and I said, why are you celebrating? Like, I don't, help me understand this, and they're like, because there's so much goodness around this. We have our lives. We have our family. We have food. And it's just a, it reminded me that in the midst of the hardest moments, that when we celebrate, it brings us joy and it brings us hope. Matter of fact, Anne Lamott has a quote that I love. And um, I'm probably messing up the slides, but um, Anne Lamott's quote is coming. Um, hopefully you love Anne Lamott. She's one of my favorites. She says this. She says, giving things could change the whole day, your whole day to change your whole life. Oftentimes, as we try to pursue our dreams and our hopes in life, we need to just take a step back and give thanks and be grateful and celebrate the goodness of life. Help one now celebrating 10 years the goodness of what God has done. We're celebrating with you because without this community, it would not have happened. You were the first people to say yes and we get to celebrate that this morning. The fruit of your labor is evident all over the world. The third thing that I think is really vital is um, that moment in Syria um, made me want to quit for the first time in 12 years. Um, I actually wrote it down in my journal, like, I'm, I'm done. You know, like this, it's not getting better. Why keep sacrificing? And then when I worship with these folks who are celebrating um, the, the deep level of conviction. Like, if they can keep fighting, then we can keep fighting. 
If they're going to be in the front lines fighting, then we'll be behind them, fighting for them and with them. And all over the world, in the communities Lamar mentioned, we get to do that. We get to be behind the scenes, in the shadows, invisible, but we still get to fight with our local leaders and their teams to seek justice in their community. Those 33 kids um, and that moment with T in that church to celebrate has taught me a few things. Our commitment to seeking justice is a lifelong journey. It's not a quick fix. It doesn't happen overnight. If you actually research anyone who's created significant change, most of the change happened after they passed away. It's a lifetime pursuit, and that they taught me that. When I think back of those three kids in Zimbabwe, the most fascinating thing about that moment for me was why were they there? Why were these 33 kids even in this orphanage? For the most part, I would always assume they were there because of two things. One, war, or two, they didn't have loving parents. And we begin to recognize one of the hardest decisions people have to make every single day around the world love their kids, they have to make a decision to leave their kid at an orphanage so they can live. And that just gnawed at my heart for many, many years. Moms and dads have to make a decision every day to do that. And we thought, that is wrong. That is an injustice. How do we fix that? And so today as we celebrate 10 years of really amazing work together, we also have this deep commitment to justice, this deep commitment that we can do more, that we can keep fighting, that we can keep moving forward. So help one now has come up kind of with our next 10-year plan, and as partners, um, we're just sharing that plan with you today, and it's very, very simple. We believe the most effective way to do the most good in the next 10 years is to keep families together through our family empowerment program. Matter of fact, we believe we can empower 100,000 families around the world which will impact two to four million people. My hope and goal is to be here 10 years from now celebrating that moment. We wouldn't be here without you for the first 10 years. Now I'm asking you to join the next key vision of empowering families. So we have Lamar and um, Ashalo are going to come up, and they're going to talk about our family empowerment program. And for many of you, you weren't involved in, in the kind of the beginning of Help One Now partnership, but this is your moment to get involved in what we're doing next, and um, they're going to tell you how you can get involved and the impact of the Family Empowerment Program. All right, so um, as Chris said, uh, when you think about those 33 kids in Zimbabwe, and we have quite a few more orphaned kids who we care for through Help One Now, but our goal moving forward is to keep families together, to keep that from happening, right? And um, we're focusing on education, we're focusing on entrepreneurship, and we feel like those are the two biggest things that can change um, these, these communities who are trapped in poverty. Um, and this morning we want to talk a little bit about what we call the Family Empowerment Program, and it's helping families in struggling communities start really small businesses. So think about a family who's surviving on maybe $1.50 a day, they can't send their kids to school. They probably can't feed them every day. And there's definitely no way to plan for the future, right? You just see what's right in front of you. Take a family like that, help them start something really small, and maybe they're eventually making 8 to $10 a day, and it's completely transformational. So 
I want to introduce you to somebody who, as Jen said earlier, is the smartest cat in the room, and she's right. Uh, this is Ashtalo Abebe Timiskin from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. That was a mouthful. Yeah, go for it. And, and now I have to call him Dr. Ashtalo. Um, Dr. Macchiato, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Ashtalo, three days ago, was in Miami uh, at Atlantic International University walking across the stage uh, to get his PhD. So, um, yeah. So when we, say, when we say we partner with local leaders, we're partnering with local leaders uh, who are brilliant. And Estralo, you really, um, you are the brains and the heart behind this family empowerment program. Uh, seven years ago, you began implementing this really organically in Ethiopia. So I would love it if you could kind of share with us um, relatively quickly, um, one, why empower families? And two, can you share a story of, of a family? Good morning. Uh, let me tell you why we started family empowerment before seven years. Uh, the first thing, you know, uh, I have been working in the charity sector for the last 20 years. I worked for World Vision. I worked for Compassion. I worked for local charities. Then I came to work for Help One Now. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that the best thing, you know, my motto is, you know, I always say, there should be local solution for local problem. Because if you want to address any kind of local problem, development issues, you have to make sure that you get the local people get involved with and that they have to own their own development efforts. We are not the heroes, even if we are the local leaders, but they have to believe by themselves. Because most of the development intervention, it's not like empowerment. I call it more of disempowerment. The way we do development things, because we go as a professionals, we always think that whatever comes from the West is the best. Therefore, we don't believe in the local solution and we don't believe in the local community. That's how we started. I said, even I did research, 75% of children in the orphanage and on the street, they are from broken families. They're from broken families. They ended up either in the orphanage or on the street. And we call them social orphans. <laughs> because of the economic problems, because of the social problems, that's why they're in the orphanage. I think that's why we say, okay, rather than dealing with the symptom, why don't we deal with the root causes of the problem? The root cause of the problem is socioeconomic problems. They send their kids to orphanage just because they could not afford to take care of them. Therefore, we just say, okay, we need to believe with local capacity. Okay? Our family empowerment program is not like need-based. It's more of capacity-based. Even if they have socioeconomic problems, even if they are poor, they have something to contribute for their own development. That's why we believe in the local capacity. That's the first thing. And the second point is, we believe in sustainable development. You see, most of the development, if you think about the sponsorship, I used to work in sponsorship, we still do sponsorship, but if there are like five children in a given family, you just sponsor one and then leave the rest out, four of them. I call it a kind of discrimination too, because you cannot sponsor all of them. What if you empower the family? They can take care of their own kids, whether they're like one or five. Therefore, that's the focus of family empowerment. Therefore, let me, let me tell you a story. Her name is Burke. Maybe you're going to see her picture. Uh, Burke is one of our uh, beneficiaries. 
and we started with the family empowerment program in Gunture. And I met her for the first time with my project leader, Wendu, Wendemo. And we went to visit her, and she was highly discriminated just because she is HIV positive. And she lost her husband because of HIV, and she has five kids. And one of the older kids, she used to live in our, in our campus, in the transition center, in the orphanage. And uh, her older uh, daughter, she was working as a daily laborer, washing clothes for people go going to the different community so that they can survive. She, ca she make like maybe less than maybe $1.5 a day, working the whole day, just to ensure that they survive. And uh, all of them, they didn't go to school, no one of them. She gets, I told you five kids, no one is at school because she cannot afford, let alone sending them to school even to survive. She was struggling. Then when I, 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 get, I get there to visit her, when we get her home, I saw her and I gave her a big hug and a, a big kiss. Did you Ethiopian kiss? Yeah. I took, it took me like two, uh, two years to teach him you know, <laughs> the Ethiopian way of greetings. This is how we do <laughs> This, this cultural, you know, very affectionate, and we, we believe in building relationship. Let me tell you, all, if you see each and every problem, wherever you go, whether it's like church crisis, orphan crisis, family crisis, it's all about broken relationship. Broken relationship. And what we do, we restore that relationship. Going to the community, make sure that everybody is included in any kind of social and economic development. Burke, she was discriminated with my big keys, Big hug, I embraced her, I changed everything. They were watching, the community was there, they were watching. What these guys are doing? Coming from Addis Ababa, professional people like Ashu and the Wonde, but kissing, hugging, and uh, no, no, embracing HIV positive lady because there is a misconception HIV is transmitted by handshake, kissing, all this blah, blah, blah stuff. Then indirectly, I was you know, transmitting my message that this is not the way to transmit HIV. Social integration was the first intervention for us. Give, no, I told Burke, Burke, you're going to change your situation. I'm not here to fix your problem, but I'm here to tell you to believe in your own capacity. She was bedridden. She was in the bed for the last six months. No one was looking after her except her younger kids. Then I told her, Burke, this situation will be changed. I'm here to tell you, you can change your situation. Because I'm not, I wasn't there, I'm not like there, like a, a kind of as a professional. I was there just to share her burden and to tell her to believe by herself. But I want to create an opportunity. Family empowerment is all about creating opportunity for struggling families. I saw her struggling. I saw her daughter, she was struggling. Was she crisis? She was only 12. She was a breadwinner. She was struggling. I saw her struggling. Washing the whole day for different, working for different people, but making less than 0.5 US dollar per day. You see, can you imagine that? Then I told her, okay, the situation will be changing. We are here to empower you. We are here to stand next to you. We believe in you. That's what I told her. Then we gave her training. Then we gave her in-kind support to start selling cultural clothes. She has to go to a place called Wolkite, which is like one hour drive from where she was then she started to sell, sell cultural clothes. Then, within three months' time, everything changed. She made lots of profit. Then she opened a mini shop, another shop. She hired someone to work for her because her kids, they have to go to school. They have to go back to school. Then, the third business, she came up with 
phone repair shop. Burke, she hired someone. He's a technician guy who's trained on phone maintenance. She hired him to work for her. And then Burke, she was an outcast. Now Burke is a landlord. She built a nice house next to her, and she now renting that house for 1,500 per month. She's a landlord. This is how family empowerment is changing. I'm not telling you some fact stories. I'm telling you, you can come and see. I always tell people, if you want to be part of this, it's not about write, writing big check. It's more about your personal involvement. Come and build relationship with the community. Come and get involved. We, don't, we need your donation, but we need you more. We need your personal involvement. That's going to change everything. That's going to change your view, and that's going to change others' lives. That's it. Amen. So, uh, yeah, he's kind of captivating, isn't he? Um, so you guys are going to have an opportunity later that we'll present to you, but our, our vision moving forward is to create a large circle of people who can surround this type of work, this, this long-term work of empowerment and education, um, can surround leaders like this. You know, Ashtalo is one of our 10 leaders um, who we partner with around the world right now. And, and so you guys are going to get a chance this morning to be part, the first part of that circle uh, of empowerment. And uh, we'll, we'll give you more information on that. Uh, you've got a card with you. You can, you can look at it when you're supposed to be singing later if you want. Um, but right now, uh, let's move into uh, a time of communion. Thank you, brother. If you're able and willing, join me on your feet. We wrap every Sunday the same way, and it occurred to me in the first service as I listened to Chris and Ashtalo and Lamar that this is a global meal we eat. What do I mean by that? This is the reminder. It's the same reminder that people around the world gather around every week to be reminded that the very Spirit of God is what sustains us. Now, that's a very different conversation for us. For us, it's are we going to torchies or are we going to, you know, papalote for tacos after church. For people around the world, the message that Christ is in the bread in a soul and life-sustaining way is the very gospel itself. And so we gather around that symbol that to us is a means of grace. It's a place to meet Jesus. And so if you're new here, don't panic. It's real simple. Around the room at the base of the stained glass at the back of the balcony for those who are in the balcony. There's a, a, a patent and a chalice. Take the cracker, dip it in the juice, and partake. In the next couple minutes, uh, in, the, in the next couple songs, find that moment to do that and approach that and just be reminded. There's no such thing as their poverty. There's no such thing as their brokenness. This is us. This is our story. I'm so proud of this congregation and the work that we have done. Before, if I had to be honest, the one thing that drew me here from a very good gig in Houston was this kind of thinking, this upstream mission thinking. I'm a career missionary. I was raised in the foreign field. I saw it done every way it can be done wrong. I saw the footprint we left behind just, just, just destroy local incentive. This kind of upstream thinking of mission that says, if you're on the streets, where are your parents? Where, if we can support your parents, you're not on the streets. This kind of thing drew us here. You guys, I'm telling you, I'm proud of this congregation. For many of you, you're just getting to know the work that we've been doing, committing finances to before there were finances to be had. That's the nature of ANC. That's the way we've done it. And so 
I'm proud of us. So you're going to get that opportunity in a minute that has nothing to do with communion. I have no idea where that came from. Let's do communion.